Welcome to Finish Well Radio, where changing the world starts with changing the home, with your host, Meredith Curtis. Hi, welcome to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast. We are so excited that you're here today. And today we are going to talk about seven amazing World War I heroes. And so fasten your seatbelts because we are going to go on a wild ride. First of all, of course, you know that World War I was declared to be the war that ended all wars. It started in 1914 and it progressed until 1918 when a treaty was signed, but Europe was devastated, of course, by the war, and it ended up being a total world war because so many different countries on different continents were involved in it, partly because many European nations had colonies in South America, in the Caribbean, in Africa, and in Asia. And, of course, Australia was at the time part of the British Empire. So World War I, of course, did not end wars. It was not the war to end all wars. But it did have a drastic impact on the map. And it also had a drastic impact on the way countries in Europe were governed. And the huge and mighty... Austrian-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire and even Russia got a little smaller and Germany got a little smaller. So the map completely changed and it gave birth to so many new countries in Europe and then eventually in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia is a result of World War One. So World War One completely, completely changed the map. It caused many of the nations that fell, not only were they not an empire anymore, but they no longer had a king. The emperor of Austria was no longer on the throne. The Kaiser of Germany no longer on the throne. And the Ottoman Empire turned into present-day Turkey as a republic. So World War I is just a very interesting war in that it changed so much. But the truth is most people don't understand World War I, and I don't have time to go into that right now. All the causes, the bottom line is to say that will be another podcast, and you'll definitely have to listen to that, what World War I was all about. So keep your ears tuned because that will come later. But today what I really want to do is I want to show you this was a crazy war. I mean, Chemical warfare was introduced for the first time. They, of course, had dug trenches before, but this was trenches on steroids, these huge trenches, and people are fighting in trenches, and then between the trenches, there's no man's land, and people are roaring across no man's land, of course, getting blown up to smithereens. It was just so many new things. The machine gun was introduced. Tanks were tried out more toward the end of the war, but not perfected at all. In fact, the first tank, they forgot to put in a a viewer, so the tank was kind of moving all around, not knowing where to go. So here we have World War I. It was like an ending of an old era and a beginning of a new. Did you know that there were regiments that went to war on horseback? And then there were 
people in the brand new airplanes fighting in the skies, dogfighting. And so it's just a very unique war. And like I said, it's definitely worth looking into. And that is a whole nother podcast. But I do want to introduce you to some heroes because there are some people whose faith in the Lord, whose love of country, whose love of fellow man, this war allowed their testimony to shine. And I really, really, really want you to meet them. First of all, I am going to introduce you to King Albert of Belgium. Now, as you know, Belgium is a Roman Catholic country, and King Albert was a devout Roman Catholic. King Albert, more than just being a devout Roman Catholic, he was a Christian who loved Jesus. And one time he was writing to a friend who had joined a monastery, and he said, may you spend many years at this monastery in the supreme comfort of soul that is given to natures touched by grace, by faith in God's infinite power and confidence in his goodness. And another time he said to a friend, consecrating oneself wholly to the service of our Lord gives to those touched by grace, the peace of soul, which is the supreme happiness here below. King Albert used to tell his children, as you nourish your body, so you should also nourish your soul. In an interesting meditation on what he viewed as the harm that would result if Christian ideals were abandoned in Belgium, he said, Every time a society has distanced itself from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which preached humility, fraternity, and peace, the people have been unhappy because the pagan civilization of ancient Rome, which they wanted to replace it with, is only based on pride and the abuse of force. So not only did King Albert believe the Bible was true, that God was faithful, he also believed for a nation to be prosperous and blessed, a nation would have to put her trust in the Lord. Now let me take you to the very beginning of the war. And Germany has decided at the beginning of World War I that they are going to invade France. And so Germany lets the king of Belgium know that he would like permission. Now, this is kind of a formality. Hey, I would like permission to come through your nation and attack France. And Belgium had declared itself neutral. They were not going to take sides. So this was King Albert's reply. Belgium is a nation, not a road. That's what he roared when Germany requested cutting through Belgium to attack France. Defending his nation's neutrality, he rallied his troops, and he took personal command of the Belgian army. He led his troops into battle, and there was the siege of Antwerp. There was the Battle of Yesser. The Germans eventually won those battles. They so outnumbered the Belgians, yet the Belgians held their own. They fought hard. Finally, the Germans had to send a Zebulon in to to drop bombs on them because they just would not give up. It was really amazing. And it was their king that inspired them to such brave, brave loyalty. Eventually, King Albert and his army were pushed back to the North Sea. They only had a tiny strip of land where they fought in the trenches, and his wife, the queen, worked as a nurse along the front. 
Now, keep in mind, this is what's so sad about this war. It really was a family feud as well as a war. His cousin was Kaiser Wilhelm II, who attacked his country, and he would not allow his army to shoot the king. So the Lord preserved his life throughout that, but his nation was destroyed, and his people were starving to death. Even the priests and nuns were executed when the Germans finally conquered Belgium and made their way to France. I do want to tell you that the Lord allowed King Albert I to lead the final offensive against Belgium when the war was ending and he was able himself to push the German army out of Belgium. So that is one example of a king who loved the Lord loved his people and put his life on the line as well as his queen put her life on the line for the people and to stand up for what is right and say you know what I'm going to do the right thing I'm going to stand for what is right and I'm willing to pay the price and what a hero for us in our day the next hero I want you to meet is an English nurse and she actually found herself in Belgium, not by accident, as you'll find out. She found herself in Belgium when the Germans were attacking and after they conquered the Belgian soldiers. So this is Nurse Edith Clavel, and she was a pastor's daughter. She grew up in England, and she loved the Lord. She had a real heart for languages and learning. She was homeschooled as a young girl, but eventually she went to boarding school. And while she was in boarding school, she would help the other kids with their French. So because of that, because she was so good at that, she eventually ended up with a position as a governess in Belgium. So she was in Belgium for several years working as a governess teaching students and then she got an inheritance and when she got this inheritance she began to take a tour you know what would you do if you got a lot of money I would do this too she went to Austria and Bavaria and during this trip she came across a free hospital run by Dr. Wolfenberg and she was really impressed with it because they cared for people and she was really excited. So she donated some of her inheritance to this hospital and she would remember that experience because she wasn't a nurse. She was actually a governess. But after she got back to England, her father was dying and so she took care of him. She nursed him until he died. Then later she did some training and she ended up doing some private duty nursing. However, when in 1907, a school for nurses opened up and they contacted Edith and she went back there and she did some teaching. And so she even came to the attention of the queen, Queen Elizabeth of Belgium, and they just thought she was awesome. So anyway, she does this. She teaches in the school for a while in Belgium and then she goes home. So now it's 1914 and Edith is just at home in England and she's weeding her garden. And all of a sudden she hears that war has broken out and they've invaded Belgium. The Germans have invaded Belgium. Now, Edith loves the Belgians. She's been there. She's been there as a governor. She's been there as a nurse. She's met the queen and her heart is immediately, I'm going there. They're invading. I'm going to go there and take care of the wounded soldiers. So that's what she does. Now, I think that is so incredibly, incredibly brave. So she goes back to Belgium and she is taking care of 
she tells her nurses because she ends up being put in charge because she's older. Most of the nurses were really young and she's put in charge and, you know, she's not old. She's probably in her 30s. She says, okay, we're going to take care of anyone. We're going to take care of wounded Germans. We're going to take care of wounded Belgians. We're going to take care of wounded Englishmen. Whoever God brings us in here, we're going to take care of. But then this is what happened. So she would take care of these Belgian soldiers, but then she would have to turn them over to the Germans, and the Germans would execute them. So she thought, oh, my goodness, this is horrible because I'm just making them better so they can be shot. So she was approached by someone who was saying, we want to help these allied soldiers escape. And if we can get them over the border of Belgium to France, we can get them back to England or wherever they're from. So she said, okay, she would do this. She never told the nurses that work for her. So she would take care of these soldiers. And then in the middle of the real early in the morning, some people might say the middle of the night, but it was just very early in the morning, like four o'clock, she would get up and she would get her dog up and she would be walking her dog, but she would escort these soldiers to the next stop, which was often a castle led by a brother and sister who were of nobility. They, of course, they owned a castle. So, and they would hide them in these old rooms in the castle. So, this went on, and she was able to help many soldiers escape, but she knew if she was caught, she would be executed. So what happened is, of course, one of the Frenchmen that asked her to help her escape turned out to be a spy for the Germans. So he later was executed, actually, for being a spy, but he betrayed her and so she was arrested and she was put in prison for 10 weeks now just so that you know all in all she helped 75 soldiers escape and they were able to live because of what she did so when she got into the hospital she knew like I knew that if I did this I could possibly die. And, of course, people in England pleaded for her life. People in America pleaded for her life. Even many Germans pleaded for her life. The Belgians pleaded for her life. But in the end, she was executed. And so when she was in the hospital, she said, it's not enough that I have patriotism in my heart. I must have no hatred. So before she was executed, she decided in her mind to forgive the people who would execute her and the whole German people. And she worked through that. And then the priest that would bring her communion, because she was an Anglican, and the Anglican priest who would bring her communion would talk to her and she had her Bible. She would read her Bible every day and she had an old worn copy of Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis and those were her favorite books. And when it was getting close for the day for her to be executed, she told him, I'm ready to see the Lord. I knew this would come and I have now worked through forgiveness. And so she wasn't just, okay, I'm a believer. I love my country. You know, this is fine. But 
she worked through the forgiveness to be honorable and to really honor Christ. So her life just so honored the Lord and her death so honored the Lord. And the truth is, when she was executed, it became a rallying cry in America, in England, in France. Remember Nurse Clavel? Really, she was became a beloved heroine. And I discovered her. I'd never heard of her. You know how I found out about her? I was reading an Agatha Christie book, a Tommy and Tuppence book, and they were talking about Edith Clavel, and I was like, like she was some big hero that everyone knew about, and I thought, well, I don't know who she is, so I looked her up, and then I ended up discovering her in a book of Christian heroes, so I was so excited, so I'm so excited that I found out about her, and I could tell you about her, because she really impresses me, because her heart, she really spent her entire life serving, and then she forgave her enemies, and just like Jesus was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, she did the exact same thing. So she's just an awesome, awesome lady, and I'm so excited to have told you about her. Now, the next person I want to tell you about is Herbert Hoover. Now, we think of Herbert Hoover, he was the president when the stock market crashed, but I want to tell you about the Herbert Hoover that people don't talk about, because when I grew up in high school history or elementary history or middle school history, that's all they told us. Like, I never knew anything about him, but he's an amazing man. He grew up in a Quaker household, and he definitely believed in the Lord. He felt the Bible was paramount for the future of our nation, for us to respect the Bible, obey the Bible, hold, hold it as the Word of God. Being a Quaker, he's very private about his faith, so he didn't write oodles of stuff about it, but he definitely lived his faith. And he was orphaned at a young age and worked very, very hard and eventually was able to be a very successful businessman. And as a result of that success, he wanted to use his money to help other people. So when the Mississippi levees broke in the 1927 flood, he coordinated the relief effort in America. And I'm going to tell you how he ended up feeding most of Europe after World War One, and how he saved the Belgians from starving to death. Here we go with Herbert Hoover. When World War One broke out, he was in London. He was a businessman, I told you. And at the time, he was working out of London. His business dealings were there. He had a lot of other friends that were American businessmen, and they were happened to be in London, too. So when the war broke out and everything went down with Belgium and the Belgians were starving, so many had been killed, and even the nuns and priests, I told you, it was just very, very horrible. So when all of that happened, Herbert Hoover, whose first instinct was to help and serve, said to his friends, let's do something. And they said, okay, you're in charge. So he was in charge, and they donated tons and tons of money. And then it wasn't just donating money. He literally had to go and appeal to the government, the German government and the English government and the Belgian government. So he's saying to the German government, I want to come and bring food to these people that you are in the process of slaughtering. And then to the English government, he said, I want to bring food into an area that's occupied by the enemy. So, you know, just very difficult 
diplomatic issues that he had to do. So it wasn't just raising the money. It wasn't just getting the food and all of those logistics. But he literally had to negotiate with heads of state, with governments that were fighting with each other and be a neutral party. I cannot even imagine. But he did it. He was able to bring... He started the Commission for Relief for Belgium, and he spent $11 million a month. And that was a truckload of money back then. It's a truckload of money right now, but even more so back then. He distributed food to the Belgians and kept the Germans away from it. Now, how did he do that? Because they stole all their food from the farms and everything. During that time, he worked 14-hour days, and he met with German officials 40 times to make this happen. All in all, he distributed over 2 million tons of food, tons of food, to over 9 million more victims. He had to negotiate with Germany, Great Britain, the Netherlands, France, and Belgium to get the job done. And then when he was so successful with Belgium, northern France said, hey, can you help us? And so then he extended his relief to northern France. After the war... Herbert Hoover led the American Relief Association and distributed food and helped rebuild damaged cities across Europe. So when the war was over, Europe was decimated. I mean, the cities were demolished, people were starving. And then to top everything off, at the end of World War I, there was an outbreak of influenza. So, so many people who survived the war were killed by influenza. So he led the effort to rebuild Europe. And after the war, King Albert I honored the generous American as a friend of the Belgian people, and he gave Herbert Hoover a Belgian passport. If you go to Belgium, you'll find Herbert, I mean, Hoover Streets, Hoover Libraries, and Hoover Squares, because the Belgians really, really appreciated their friend, Herbert Hoover, because of him. They did not die off, but they ended up surviving the war and rebuilding. And not only that, but millions of Europeans were able to survive because of the relief that he provided as head of that organization. So another hero, someone who just lived his faith by serving and used his business gifts to serve in a time of need. I just love that. So now I want you to meet someone. His name is Eddie Rickenbacker, and he was a race car driver. So when World War I started, he was sent to France. He became the personal chauffeur of General John J. Pershing. Now, you know who that is, right? He was like the head honcho of all the Americans. So he said to him, hey, I think that we should get planes in the sky and I'd like to be in the sky. You know, now he was a race car driver, but he was sure that he would be a great pilot. He didn't know how to fly, but like you know, like I said, he was a race car driver, and he just pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally, the general said, okay, because Germany's Red Baron was dominating the skies and getting all these kills. Do you remember Snoopy cartoons? Some of you are too young to remember, but when I was a little girl, the newspapers were full of Snoopy cartoons, and there was the Red Baron. And Snoopy would go fighting the Red Baron. So he would dress up like he was a pilot from the 1910s and 20s, like how they would, with their helmet and their scarf and all that, and he would go fight the Red Baron. Well, the Red Baron was actually a real person who 
flew an airplane and they had dog fights, which were fights in the sky where the pilots would shoot each other and the Red Baron had the most kills in the whole war. So eventually, Eddie Rickenbacker is able to get, not only does he become an, a pilot, but he commands a squadron, a pilot. So that's really exciting for him. And he ended up destroying 69 enemy aircraft. And it's the highest number by any American. But imagine, America was only in the war for like a year. Imagine if he had been there that whole time. He probably would have had the most kills as a dogfighter. But he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor by President Herbert Hoover in 1931. And one time he was talking about how he escaped death, and this is what he wrote. So this is a quote from him. I want to make it clear that this escape and the others were not the result of any super ability or knowledge on my part. I wouldn't be alive today if I had to depend on that. I realized then, as I headed for France on one wing, that there had to be something else. That's a good time to give your heart to Christ. You know, you're flying in an airplane on one wing and there's a war going on. Yeah, I think I would do that. I had seen others die. That's not what he said. That was me. Okay, back to his quote. I had seen others die brighter and more able than I. I knew there was a power. I believe in calling upon it for aid and for guidance. I'm not such an egotist as to believe that God has spared me because I am me. I believe there's a work for me to do, and I am spared to do it, just as you are. And this is something else he wrote. He was telling about a story, and he says, Three quarters of an hour of gasoline remained, and no compass. Then I thought of the North Star. Glory be, there she shines. I'd been going west instead of south. Keeping the star behind my rudder, I flew south for 15 minutes, then found myself above the River Meuse, picked up our faithful searchlight, and 10 minutes later I landed. As I walked across the field to my bed, I looked up and repeated most fervently, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. And so that really impacted his faith. Whether he was a believer before or not, it definitely strengthened his faith. And after the war was over, he became the owner of the Indianapolis Speedway, which is, of course, where all the race car drivers go. But interestingly, so he becomes the owner of the Speedway. But then when World War II was around, he's asked by the Secretary of War to go on a special mission. So what happens is the plane didn't have an adequate navigational system, so they end up stranded in the ocean. And this is something that there were other guys with them. They ended up in two life wraps, and it was so awful. They ended up surviving, but the guys later said, if it wasn't for Eddie Rickenbacker, we would not have made it because he would not let us give up. And he just continued to encourage them. One of the men just decided, I'm done. And he slid right over the raft like to commit suicide. And Eddie grabbed him, hauled him back into the boat and said, let's not give up. Someone read the Bible. Someone read the Bible. And so this one man who he would read the Bible every day, he pulled out his New Testament and they all said the Lord's Prayer. And then he read this verse and he said, therefore, take ye no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? 
wherewithal shall we be clothed? For these things the heathen seeketh, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. So they had been needing food, and they had been needing water, and they were starving. And so right after that, it began to rain, and they had fresh water to drink. And it was so cool. And then a seagull lands on their raft, and they're able to catch him, kill him, and eat him. I know that probably sounds gross to some of you, but the Lord just began to provide, and he was a catalyst in them not giving up. So anyway, he had a very exciting life after that. He was still involved in race car driving. He, not driving, but like sponsoring things. He ended up owning an airline called Eastern Airlines, and he fought for conservative values for really the rest of his life. But in the time of trouble, he was very brave because he looked to the Lord. And so not, I don't, I think it's awesome that he had so many kills in this dog fight. But what I really appreciate about Eddie Rickenbacker is that he encouraged people. He was humble. He gave glory to God and he knew that God had saved him for a purpose. And he did his very best to live out that purpose. And this is what he said about America. He said, I pray to God every night to be given the strength and power to continue my efforts to inspire in others the interests, the obligation, the responsibilities that we owe to this land of America for the sake of future generations. It was clear to me that God had a purpose for keeping me alive. I have been saved to serve. That's so exciting that he had that idea in his mind and from the time he was a young man in world war one until the end of his life he had that mission and that purpose and it didn't waver so that's really cool so so far we have a hero that went on to lead his nation as a king we have a nurse that gave up her life in order to save those soldiers she did it knowing she could be caught and executed we have a race car driver turned fighter pilot and we have a businessman who was so generous and kind who ended up becoming president. So those are four of our heroes, and we have three to go. But we are going to take a break right now and have a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Now that I'm a grandfather, I love seeing my son pass on a godly heritage to his sons. Part of that godly heritage is learning about Christian heroes who have surrendered to Jesus and impacted the world around them. Celebrate Our Christian Heroes will equip you to teach your children about Christian heroes in a creative way by having a Heroes for Jesus party. To learn more about or purchase Celebrate Our Christian Heroes, please visit our website, powerlineprod.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-L-I-N-E-P-R-O-D.com. And don't forget to inspire your children to greatness. Powerline Productions. Being world changers, raising world changers. You've been listening to Finish Well Radio on the Ultimate Radio Network. Now, back to your host, Meredith Curtis. 
Welcome back. We are going to talk about three more heroes. The next hero is Sergeant Alvin York. He was once described as World War I's greatest civilian soldier. Yet, when he started the war, he was a conscientious objector. Let me tell you about this guy who lived in a small mountain town in Tennessee. His parents were believers, but he was living kind of a rough life, drinking, gambling, and just cursing up a blue streak. But as a rowdy young man, he still attended church out of respect for his parents. And at one of those meetings, he gave his heart to Christ. It was during a revival meeting, and he was so convicted of sin, and he dedicated his heart to Jesus Christ. So during the next three years, he read the Bible, he prayed, he was mentored by other men, he shared the gospel with people, and in three years later, he was an elder in this church. And so about that time, he was drafted into the war. And he said, I can't kill another human being. Please release me. Give me a non-fighting role. And the government just kept saying, nope, you have to fight. No, you have to fight. Now, keep in mind, this is a mountain boy who shoots his dinner, you know, so he is a crack shot. So the government not letting him go. And he's really in turmoil because he doesn't know how he can kill another human being. And he has a lot of time to pray while he's going through basic training. He talks to a lot of different pastors. And finally, he comes to the conclusion that it is okay to fight in a just war. And that is a whole nother talk when you talk about a just war versus an unjust war. But he felt like he could fight and so he did pick up his gun so what happened was during the war he would just read his bible constantly and talk to others and share the gospel with them and he would pray with them and he knew that his only hope was to put his trust in jesus so one day sergeant york made a name for himself because of an incident that occurred during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. You see, he and about 17 other Americans just captured troops from a German regiment when they found themselves under heavy fire from enemy machine guns. Nine of the other Americans were quickly wounded or killed. But York, remember, he's a crack shot. <laughs> he escaped and began picking off the German gov gunners with his rifle. When the six of the enemy tried to charge York with bayonets, he drew out his forty-five pistol and he shot them all. Soon he forced back the remaining Germans to surrender and later claimed even more prisoners on his way back to the American line. All totaled, York came back to his regiment with 132 enemy soldiers and single-handedly had killed 20 German troops. For his efforts, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, and several other citations for bravery due to different situations. So this man, he was such a blessing to his men, and men like him helped to win the war and stop the aggression that was going on. When he got home to Tennessee, he became a farmer, and he did work on opening schools in his mountain community. And in the last years of his life, he urged Americans to resist socialism. And of course, he shared his faith until the very end. So Sergeant York is an amazing man. And if you never read his biography or seen the movie Sergeant York, 
really good movie. It's an old movie. You might say, oh my goodness, those special effects. Well, I mean, it's an old movie. It's it's a really old movie, but it's a great story, and you'll love you'll love the story, and you'll love getting to know more about Sergeant York. Okay, the next hero, the next World War One hero is William Wild Bill Donovan, and he's actually considered the father of the CIA. So how is he a war hero? Well, I'm going to tell you because we don't really think of him very often as a war hero, but he really spent his whole life serving the nation. He was the grandson of Irish immigrants, and he was very religious. At one time, he wanted to become a Catholic priest, and he graduated from Columbia Law School, and he practiced law, and he joined the National Guard of New York, and he served as a captain. So, he was called down against Pancho Villa in the campaign against him in 1916. So that was kind of like a training ground for him. While he was in college, he had kind of experimented, like looked into other religions beside Christianity, but he remained devoted to Christianity for all of his life. He realized that nothing else was like serving Jesus. So he was so fierce in battle that they nicknamed him Wild Bill. And during his time in the service, he went from being a captain to being a major general. He earned the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, the Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star, and the Purple Heart. So I want to tell you about one situation. He was outgunned. And he led his troops on an assault against a very heavily organized and fortified position. He rallied his troops the whole time. You can do it. Don't stop. Keep going. And even after he took a bullet to his leg, he refused to be evacuated until all his men were withdrawn to safety. So as you can imagine, he had a lot of devotion from his men. And he made a big name for himself later on in life. I said he's considered the father of the CIA. But in his heroics in World War One, it made people sit up and take notice. This is someone who doesn't give up. This is someone who knows how to lead people. This is someone who can rally the troops. And so much of that was important later on in his life. So after he was a hero in World War I, he made a fortune as a Wall Street lawyer. And then later he founded what would later become the CIA. And that is Wild Bill Donovan. So we're down to our final hero of World War I. And you probably never heard of this man. I had not heard of him, but I was very impressed with his story. His name is William Harold Coltman. He was the most decorated British soldier in World War I, yet he never fired a shot. There are officers and soldiers. There might be officers that got more awards than him, but no soldier ever did. His medals, one of his medals was the Victoria Cross, and I'm going to tell you how I got that. But he was a devout Christian, but he was also a pacifist, and he could not bring himself to kill another human. He was very devoted to Jesus, and he attended the Plymouth Brethren Church in his village, and he taught Sunday school, and he led a very simple life as a gardener. So that's who he was. He was just a very simple guy, taught Sunday school, worked as a gardener, and he was a pacifist. However, what happened is when the war started, he volunteered, but he said, I can't shoot, but I'll be a stretcher bearer. So they said, okay. So 
He just did so many amazing things. I'm just going to tell you about some of them. He got one medal for rescuing a wounded officer from no man's land. And remember I told you about the trenches and then in the middle was no man's land. Everyone was firing across that. So someone got wounded in no man's land and you went out to get them, you would most likely be killed. But he went out there, he got them, he brought them back. The officer had been commanding a wiring party during a misty night. The mist cleared, and the party found themselves under fire. So the officer was wounded in the thigh, and he went right out, and he brought them in. Less than six months later, he went on to evacuate wounded from the front line at great personal risk under fire. He saved many, many lives and continued throughout the night to search for wounded under shell and machine gun fire. He brought several men in. His absolute indifference to danger had a most inspiring effect on the rest of the men. So here the men are fighting and of course everyone is scared in a war. And then here comes this little gardener from England and this tiny little village in England and he does doesn't care about danger. He just goes and he gets the man and he brings them home. And why was he able to do that? Because he put his faith and trust in God. So on another thing that happened was an ammunition dump was hit by mortifier causing several casualties. He took responsibility from removing the very lights from the dump. And the following day, he took a leading role in tending men injured when the company headquarters was mortared. A little over a week later, a trench tunnel collapsed, trapping a number of men. Coltman immediately organized a rescue party to dig them out. He went on and on and on, showing incredible gallantry under heavy artillery fire. During one advance, he remained at his work without rest or sleep, attending to the wounded, taking no heed of either shell or machine gun fire, and never resting until he was positive that his sector was clear of wounded. He set the highest example of fearlessness and devotion to duty to those with him. He had an extensive list of decorations and medals. Here he was a stretcher bearer, and when he heard that men had been left behind, when the company had to pull out, he went forward alone with enemy fire all around him. And he found the casualties, dressed their wounds, and on three successive occasions carried comrades on his back to safety, thus saving their lives. He tended the wounded for 48 hours straight with no sleep. Of course, he got so many medals for that, as you can imagine. I told you he was the most decorated hero. But what did he do after the war? He went home to his village, home to his wife. He worked as a gardener until he retired, and he taught Sunday school in his little village church. He had gone to a horrible place, to a horrible war, and he had seen that God is faithful. So what life lessons do we learn from these heroes, from Edith the nurse, from Herbert Hoover, the rich businessman, from Wild Bill, just a crazy guy in battle, from this very simple gardener, from Sergeant York, who is a church elder from Tennessee. Well, we learn a few things. This life is not all there is. And the enemy may be able to kill this body, 
but he can't take away our eternal life. And they all had a sense this life is not all there is. And so they were able to live wholeheartedly in the moment. And all of them risked their lives because they knew this life is not all there is. The second thing that we see from all of these men and women is that faith carries us through. I love that Eddie Rickenbacker would pray when he came home from a dogfight, he would thank the Lord that he came home alive. And that is the attitude that all of these men and women had, that they were trusting in God to protect them. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God can rescue us from the burning fire. But even if he doesn't, I will still serve him. And that's the kind of faith that turns us into heroes. Another life lesson we see from this group of heroes is that they were born for such a time as this. Just like Esther, Mordecai told Esther, you were born for such a time as this. You're put in this position to save your people. And all of these men and women felt that way. This was their time. And they didn't want to be there. No one wants to be in a war. No one wants to be in a situation where people are dying all around you. But when things are going on, they realize in their hearts, I'm here for such a time as this. And it made them brave and it made them bold. They also, all of them in their life, when I was reading about all of them, all of them knew God would never leave them. They had a sense that God was with them. And whether they were successful or failed, they knew God was with them. I love William Coltman's testimony because there he is. He's just this simple gardener teaching Sunday school. That's just so ordinary. And yet he goes to the battlefield. He's this amazing, amazing hero without ever firing a shot never compromising his convictions and then returns home and is just as faithful as ever. So whether he was in the ordinary circumstances of life or in the battle, he was absolutely faithful. And I love that. And that's how they all were. They were, they were faithful in their life and they were faithful in these dark moments and they learned lessons from these dark moments that they took back to their life and it allowed them to live the rest of their life except for Edith even more fully and finally Eddie Rickenbacker was so famous to say I was saved my life was spared for a purpose and all of us our life is spared. We don't even know how often the Lord keeps a car from hitting us or keeps a sickness from us. We don't know how many times our life has been saved. But we do know if we belong to Jesus that we have been saved from sin and we belong to him forever. And our life has been spared. Our life has been saved so that we can serve others just like Jesus. He's our hero. He is our perfect example. And all of them in different ways reflected the heart to serve that Jesus had. You see Herbert Hoover feeding the hungry. You see Edith Clavel healing the sick. You see William Coltman rescuing people. And all of them were imitating Jesus in some way. And he is such a great hero for us to look to. I love these heroes of World War I because they looked 
to the big hero, the greatest hero of all time. And I hope and pray that their stories inspire you. And more than that, that Jesus, our great hero, inspires you even more. God bless you. And until next time, happy homeschooling. Thank you for listening to Finish Well Radio with Meredith Curtis and the Finish Well team. Please listen in every first and third Monday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time here at the Ultimate Radio Network.